Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of books on a wide range of subjects, both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Katrina McPherson, whose mystery novel, Scott on the Rocks, has been published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Katrina. Hi. So would you mind starting off by reading a brief excerpt from the book? I'd love to. Yes, thank you. So this is the beginning of chapter two of Scott on the Rocks, and it goes like this. No matter how depressed, carb-stuffed and hammered you go to bed, waking up to find that it's still California outside always helps. February the 15th, I thought to myself, stretching in bed. Well, I say stretching, but it's more like bracing. I put my hands against the wooden wall at the top of my box bed and my feet against the wooden wall at its base, and I see what creaks first, me or the boat. The sun was shining through the bare branches of the hackberry trees, and a Cinderella wardrobe department of little birds was chirruping away as they took their morning dip in the slough. And there was good coffee waiting at the Swiss sisters' drive through and fresh bagels if I wasn't still full of takeaway. In Dundee in mid-February, the rain would be turning to sleet, horizontal sleet at that. The pigeons would be pecking at the frozen sick and the coffee would be instant. It didn't go down well when I mouthed off to Alison about instant coffee. What's wrong with us, I said. We've got the cheek to whine about American tea and then suck down that bilge. We might as well eat tinned potatoes and drink powdered OJ. Life, I told myself sternly, wasn't too bad. I had my health. I had Obamacare while it lasted. I was living in a democracy in a time of local peace. I had good friends and an interesting job where I was my own boss, flexible hours, all that. I just needed to tweak that one last little thing. I just needed to meet the man of my dreams. Even the man of one wild weekend would do. Thank you, Katrina. And and for our listeners, could you just put that section in context? Who's speaking, by the way? Oh, yes, that is uh, Lexi Campbell. She is a Scot who lives in California. Where did I get the idea, right? I'm speaking from California right now. And her name is Lexi, spelled L-E-A-G-H-S-A-I-D-H, which is how you spell Lexi in Gaelic. So her name is basically Katrina with an O, but dialed up to 11. And we find her on her little houseboat in the Last Ditch Slough at the back of the Last Ditch Motel. Uh, where she lives with a gang of her sidekicks, Watsons, her pals. But the idea of of a series on a set in a motel was that it would be transients. They would come for one book and then they would go. This was my good idea. But I fell in love with them all in book one, and so I made them all live there permanently. So there's a little gang of uh, pals who, as I say, fight crime and kale. And how did Lexi get to California from Scotland? Oh, right. Well, she she is a marriage guidance counsellor, a marriage and family therapist. Um, and I thought that would be the funniest thing for a Scottish person to do in California, to try and give relationship advice to California people. Um, she ended up there when she met and very hastily married an American dentist who was on a golfing trip to Scotland. Uh, her marriage lasted about six weeks and then she divorced him, but she, but she stayed. And did you have the idea for this series before you yourself moved from Scotland to California? 
Oh, God, no. It took, uh, I think it took about six years before I believed that I could ever set a book in California. And even that, that it's not an American book because the voice character, the protagonist is Scottish. But it took me that long to think I know enough about my new home to set a book here and not just make lots of mistakes. I mean, my, my arrival in California and life here has been a bit happier. I'm still married to the person I came with, which is always nice even after nine months of lockdown, just about. But I I mean, I, I quite uh, sort of with great feeling of carefreeness set partial books in America before I lived here because I didn't know what I didn't know. But after I moved here and realised what I didn't know, it took me all those years to get around to it again. So, uh, I mean, I read a fair number of, of mysteries and have for more decades than perhaps I'd like to admit on the air. I'm not aware of a relationship counselor as a detective before uh were you inspired by someone else who had the idea or did it just seem to you like an interesting variant on a tradition of amateur sleuthing yeah it was this was a very unusual series for me to begin because it was my editor at the time although it's i'm with a different publisher now who said we want something funny from you just straight up funny and it struck me as the funniest thing, uh, a doer, Scott. Uh, we've got sayings like uh, first breath, beginning of death, and there's more to life than happiness. It just struck me as ripe with comic potential that she would try to uh, counsel the much more evolved California people about relationships. And also she's a professional nosy parker. But it's in the in the tradition of people um, solving murders who are not uh, professional law enforcement officers. Never happened in real life. Happens all the time in the pages of detective stories. She's sort of a private eye now. She's one of three. She's a relationship counsellor. The other two bits of her company are a makeover specialist and a home declutterer. But the home declutterer is now racking up the hours to become a PI. So she's slightly more legitimate. So Katrina, in, in getting ready for our conversation today, I listened to another interview you gave uh, sometime in the last couple of years, and you spoke about that, unlike some other authors, uh, you didn't start this series with a Bible, with a sort of set idea or semi-set idea of you know the arc of the series and how the character would evolve. Can you talk about why you chose to go in the direction of maintaining maximum flexibility? I mean, at the beginning, I thought of it as a trilogy. I conceived a trilogy, so a monster of the week plot, and then uh, the lives, the, the life of the protagonist would be an arc over three books. And then, uh, to be frank, I got an offer for books three and four and thought, what am I going to do now? Um, because there's a, I mean, these are not serious books, right? She lives on a houseboat behind a motel called the La Last Ditch Motel, and she's a marriage guidance counsellor who solves murders. So already we know this is not the wire, right? But I think some of the humour and some of the setup, I thought this can be broad because it's three books, three and out. It's a trilogy. This will be fun. But then when I said yes to book four, I thought, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to let these people just carry on in this frankly preposterous fashion or are going to take them down out of this trilogy and then bounce them back into a longer series slightly more plausibly. And I think it was at that point that Drew Ann Love, 
um, who's you know famous in the mystery world and is a dear friend, said, I think quite off the cuff, said that she believed that even a long series should go three by three. There should be a three book arc and then another three book arc and then if you're you know if you're up for it a third one. So that's what I'm doing. But flexibility, no God, no flexibility is out the window. You you write yourself into. I try not to, but every time you put a word down, that's a door slamming shut, you know. But I always try. Another series I've got is fifteen books long, but I I still don't have a bible for that book, and there are dark places, undecided places in that detective's life, so that if I ever turn there, I'm still free to do what I like. How would you say, I mean, you've talked about how it's gone from three to four, and hopefully as long as uh, as you want to write the series. How has Lexi changed from your initial idea, conception of her, if she has? Well, so that's a good question. Has she yet? I mean, she's she's less offensive to her new American friends and neighbours now. I mean, she wasn't ever deliberately offensive. She was just clueless. I mean, she was just me from six years previously. Uh, so she understands a little bit more and she doesn't put her foot in it quite quite so much, which is a bit of a shame because that was funny to write. Um, she, I don't think she's changed as much as I need to change some of the people around her. So I was talking about the broadness of the concept for a trilogy. One of the um, her, one of her two new best friends is an anaesthetist, as I would call him, anesthesiologist, I think you would call him, um, who's also uh, suffers from a crippling kleptoparasitosis, which means he, he thinks there are imaginary insects everywhere. And he lives in the motel because one of the owners of the motel is a germaphobe and she keeps it so clean because of her germophobia that it's safe for someone who's scared of imaginary bugs. So that's the kind of thing that you would never do to someone who you wanted to keep writing about over a long series, but might do to someone with a sliver of ice in your heart for three books. So those two people, just for mercy, need to recover and move on, I think, although they haven't yet. And Lexi, this time she's dating. So I suppose there's that. She's recovered from her divorce and now she's she's dating, which is great fun to write. Online uh, dating and blind date setups it was enormous fun. So you referred to uh, your other series, uh, which I've had the pleasure of reading some of the books. Is there anything that you would say Lexi has in common with Dandy Gilver? Um, probably that they're both much more stoic than me. They're both quite unflappable. And if an unflappable fiction writer exists, I've yet to meet them. I don't think it goes well with the sitting in a room making up stories for a living. You know, I think if you've got the kind of level, steady contentment that Lexi and Dandy have got, you wouldn't be able to keep obsessing about plot points. My husband says, I mean, my, we've been married for 180 years. My husband says I overreact for a living, um, <laughs> which is probably fair point. So I think that's what they've both got in common very capable. And do you think that that's something that just happened when you created Lexi or was that by design, the, the stoicism, for example? I, no, I don't think it did. I think it happened because she, that someone had to be on an even keel 
um, in this group of people. Like someone, someone had to be steady. So I thought I'll I'll make it her, and also that meant that it was a way to temper the the broadness at times. Um, and I wanted her not to fall apart too badly when her short marriage ended. I wanted her to be able to shrug that off, and so I think her her character got set as the kind of person who'll be okay the day after they walk out of their marriage with one wheel along suitcase thousands of miles from home i'm not much of a planner to be honest so between writing a straight mystery and writing something that you know is is meant to be broadly humorous uh is one easier for you than the other um so there's three strands there's dandy gilbert so it's historical we're in the late 30s now and lexi and then i write standalone much more serious kind of psychological suspense. Sometimes serious, sometimes kind of schlock gothic, you know, amateur taxidermists and things, uh, which are always fun. Um, I think that they've all got their challenges. Obviously, standalones, you start from a standing start, nothing's a given. Um, with Dandy Gilver, I know her so well now when I go back. And with Lexi, the research is just outside the window because I'm right here. So, you know, I never have to worry that something's anachronistic or that that doesn't exist in Scotland anymore. So I think, oh, this is quite, this is quite a positive thought for me, actually. It's not, I'm not always hankering to be doing something else. I think the thing that I'm doing at that moment always feels like this is, this is the one that's, that's okay. And there's a, a measure of trepidation about whatever I'm moving on to. And, in in reading a little bit about uh, your life before becoming a writer, I understand that your feelings about your time in banking and academia <laughs> are, are less than positive. Oh my God. Uh, that being so, I mean, is there anything from those experiences that you've been able to make use of in your writing, whether in crafting a character or some sort of transferable skill? Um, banking. That I left school when I was just a bit too young to go to university. Uh, I really hated school, although I loved university. And so I worked in a bank. It was the most boring gap year ever. I was just calamitously awful. I mean, I was like, I love Lucy trying to do a new job. I, you know, I had my bag searched for missing cash and it was never missing. It was just that I couldn't count. It was awful. I don't think I'd be quite so bad now. Um, so a hearty no from that. Except maybe that I I know that I never want another day job, so that keeps me writing when I don't feel like it. I, I was a university, that what you'd call a, an assistant professor, teaching linguistics. And so la, so my training in, ling, I've got a PhD in linguistics, that helps, you know, to to have fun with American English and British English and to, to use the English of the 30s. That always helps a little bit. But actually, for nine years of study, not a great deal. I thought long and hard, like, how can I use my linguistics to write? Could I write a series about a forensic linguist? Could I? And decided, no, I couldn't. And then friends, Meg Mims and Sharon Pisacreta, wrote the Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle Mysteries with the world's most famous fictional linguist. And I was quite envious of that good idea. Well, you have your your own your own work to be proud of. So, in recent years, you've now gone to writing, if not two books a year, then something close to that. Uh, what has that been like for you? 
um, yeah, it was it was quite a decision to make. It was because, you know, someone offered me a contract and so many friends are, are trying to break into writing or trying to get their first contract or trying to stay published that I just felt that I didn't want to say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly... So there were a, there were a, there were a couple of lively years where I wrote three. I don't do anything else. I think I don't have hobbies. I mean, I, you know, I sort of cook and garden and and bake and and cycle and things, but I don't have other passions. I just write all the time. In fact, about forty minutes ago, I finished NaNoWriMo, fifty thousand words in thirty days, which is great. But not too much of a change from my normal life. It's not a, it's not a, NaNoWriMo's not a special month for me. It's just a month where I'm not the only one doing it. I think, you know, I hated, well, no, I didn't hate, I was miserable and I was really, really bad at being a linguistics lecturer. And I think the joy of not being a terrible failure at my high prestige job is going to carry me through the rest of my life writing. I mean, my husband's an academic. He's a he's a scientist. He's a professor, and he's good at it, and he loves it. So I can always I'll never forget what it was like to to be so bad at some. So okay, to put it in perspective, I was the first person in my entire family ever to go to college, right? So when I did a PhD and then got a job in a university, there was a lot of family pride on my head pressing me down like a x-ray blanket and so it was a big deal for me to to say I can't do this I really hate this and I'm bad at it and I'm walking away so I think I think writing's always going to feel like a treat that's good to hear and uh, thank you again I mean the the book was a real pleasure thank you Uh, and thank you Katrina for your time this afternoon Uh, and thank you listeners Uh, The book, again, is Katrina McPherson's Scott on the Rocks, published by Severn House. Thank you for listening, and please join us again soon for the next Splitcast.